First, a bit of background on this concept of purification of the heart. The heart here means your spiritual heart, your qalb. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran al-Kareem has mentioned that every human being has a body, which is known as your jism and your jasad, and your ruh, which is your spirit or your soul. The ruh has different parts. That is your aql, your nafs, and your qalb. The aql is your mind. That is the seat of your khayalat or your thoughts. The nafs is the seat of your desires, your khayishat. And the qalb is the seat of your emotions or your jazbat. And the qalb is the control room of the ruh, the control room of a human being. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Quran al-Kareem, يَوْمَ لَا يَنْفَعُوا مَالٌ وَلَا بَنُونَ إِلَّا مَنْ أَتَلَّهُ مِقَلْبٍ سَلِيمٍ that remember that day on which neither sons nor money will benefit you. It means remember that day when neither any worldly relationship will benefit you, nor any worldly possession will benefit you. Successful alone will be that person who brings to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala salim, a pure and untainted heart. And the Islamic philosophy of creation is that all of us were created with a kalban salim. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave a human being the ability to do good, khair, and the ability to do evil, shara. The more and more sin we do, the less and less purified our heart becomes. So therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks in the Quran about this process of purification which is called tazkiyah. That's successful is that person who has purified it. And degraded and at a complete loss is that person who has succumbed to it who has failed to purify it. So this is sometimes known as Tazkiyat al-Nafs, sometimes known as Tazkiyat al-Qalb, sometimes called Tazfiyat al-Qalb, it's another Arabic word from which the Urdu word Safai has been drawn from. Purification of the heart. Right? Purification of the heart itself in the deen of Islam is fard, absolutely fard, because without it, it's not possible to succeed on the Day of Judgment. Any particular method or process of purification is optional. But purifying your heart itself is absolutely mandatory because purifying our heart in the first instance means purifying ourselves of our inner sins. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said on the Quran, And you should leave all the sins that you do both in the zahir or apparently externally and those that you do internally. What does this mean? External sins are things that you know like eating pork, eating alcohol, etc. Batin sins are unlawful desire, anger, <coughs> greed, love for this world, over-materialism, envy, jealousy, pride, arrogance, conceit, etc. When Allah subhanahu equated the zahir and the batin sin, that means that as haram it is to have one morsel of pork, it is as haram to have one feeling of envy for your fellow Muslim. As haram it is to have one morsel of pork, it is as haram to have one feeling of unlawful desire. As haram it is to have one morsel of pork, it is haram to have an unlawful feeling of anger. So it means the batin sins are equally crippling and it's absolutely incumbent upon us the form in this verse is sigai amr, which means the imperative command. That is imperative that we leave all of the sins that we do externally and internally. The way to leave the internal sins has been referred to as this process of purification of the heart. The second meaning of purification of the heart means to adorn your heart with the sifat of the mu'mineen. Which means all these different sifat that come in the Quran al-Kareem, dhikr, tawakkul, sabr, shukr, khawf, rajah, 
yaqeen in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, mahabba, love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, khashiyah, fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, etc., etc. Right? These are the two aspects to purification. So let me begin then with the text. This is a text written by a medieval Muslim scholar by the name of Imam al-Mulud, and actually it's a poem. And what the classical Muslim scholars used to do is they would put key topics, such as purification of the heart, into poetry, into short poetry, because they were people of an old tradition, and they would be able to memorize that poem. And they would basically carry that poem with them whenever they went. Now, whenever you memorize something, and you memorize it with meaning and understanding, then it becomes part of you. It becomes an inseparable part of you, and you might remember it. And that's actually what they would do. So they would memorize this poem, and if all of a sudden they felt something, let's say anger, right? So they would have this ability to recall those two, three lines of poetry about subduing your anger. And that would be like, it's just a mechanism, it's a process. Like I said, it's not fard, but it's any process, anything that can enable a person to reach the objective, as long as that process is not against the Sharia. There's nothing against the Sharia in writing poetry, because in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, a very famous Sahaba, Sayyidina Hassan ibn Thabit, radiallahu ta'ala, himself composed poetry. Uh, and the poetry actually was in praise of and describing the beauty and uh, honorific characteristics and the virtues of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. So Imam Malud <coughs> begins by saying, I begin by starting with the heart of beginnings, for it is the highest and noblest of beginnings. Right? So this is initially first a play on words, that I begin with the heart of the beginnings because the whole poem is about purifying the heart. The heart is basically a kanaya for the core, for the centerpiece, for the major focus of a person's efforts. So it begins with the heart of beginnings. Another thing he's suggesting here is that there are many entry points. There is no one set exclusive way to begin the process of purification. Therefore, he uses the plural form beginnings, that there are many ways. And in this day and age, many of us may enter this in different ways. Perhaps some of us might first begin with working on our love for Allah. Other people might begin in a totally different way by beginning first on their fear for Allah, right? So there are multiple ways of beginning. He is suggesting that in all those beginnings, he thinks that, let's say, door number five, so to speak, right, is the best way to enter. That heart of beginning for him, which he calls the highest and noblest of beginnings, is what? Is to have adab with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To have adab with Allah. To be courteous to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the high and the majestic. So the first beginning is adab. <laughs> first beginning here is adab. And not just any adab, but adab with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now if you think about this, normally most of us, we've heard this term adab, but we don't use it for Allah. A person says you should have good adab to one another, or you should have good adab towards your parents, good adab towards your teacher. And so you notice a trend that people use is that you should have good adab towards your elders. Well, all of us here are going to have good adab towards your elders and the most exalted person or the person of the being who is the most exalted and the highest above us is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what does that mean? You can all hear me fine probably. No? What does adab with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mean? Right? So he describes that. Number one, by practicing modesty and humility. Modesty and humility are two separate things. Haya and ids. Haya and ids. Modesty is haya. Rather, haya is modesty. You can understand that as haya can be translated as modesty, it can be translated as shame. And ids is humility. Realizing that we are low and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is high. Okay? 
what does modesty here mean? Modesty means that one aspect of haya is that, for example, if you have an adab towards an elder, you won't do something that is vulgar in front of that person, right? Because you're ashamed. You have some shame, some haya in front of that person. Very simple example, there's some young men who smoke cigarettes, but they won't smoke a cigarette in front of their father, right? If their father comes, well, here, they'll probably throw it away. Sometimes I walk by, they go like this, right? So what does it mean? It means there's some level of, there's some haya there, right? Haya is, and in the Fajr there, if you will do this towards the end, that haya is a branch of iman. Haya is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's something that is part of our fitra. It makes us realize that something is wrong. And it's very unfortunate that the Western system teaches us to subdue our haya. In fact, a very famous quote in American English at least is that shyness is a sickness, right? And if a child is shy in school, they call the parents in, right? And they say that, oh, you know, your girl doesn't like to talk to the boys, or your boy seems awkward around the girls, right? It's completely different in Islam. Haya is to be celebrated. And all of us, you would see that me and you in our own lives, we felt this haya. Take any sin that any one of us have ever done, and you will notice that the first time you did that sin, there was some hesitation, some reluctance. That was your haya calling out to you that don't do this. There's no need to do this. There's no need, there's no definition of being cool or peer pressure, and there was some inner reluctance in your heart. That actually was your haya. When you first did that sin, there was a feeling of remorse and regret afterwards. That was also the result of your haya. But if you don't give in to your haya, then eventually, right, you do end up subduing it. Right, and going back to that example, then the second time you do the sin, it's easier. The third time you do the sin, it's easier, right? I remember once a student at Lums came to me and said that before I came to Lums, she said that I thought smoking cigarettes was really bad. You know, like in my A-levels, I used to see somebody smoking cigarettes, I thought this is, ooh, you know, it's a very big thing. And now that I'm at Lums, cigarettes, kya, meto, I think things that are far greater than cigarettes seem just like second nature. Not to do, she wasn't doing them, but witnessing. So what does it mean if you don't, your haya also retains your moral sensitivity. That you feel morally offended at something that is displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a natural gift He's given to us. Right? But again, if you don't give in to that, and if you give that up and say, well, what can I do? Right? Or ye muhalasai. Or isme kya harajin. Or wo pirbi meri dos ban sakte hai. Right? Or whatever it is, right? You step on that haya and jump into exactly that thing. Which your inner soul, your inner conscious, your talb. Remember, we were created with a qalbun salim. So that purity of that heart, if anything is pure, doesn't want to be defiled. It doesn't want to be spoiled. It doesn't want to be corrupted. So that heart was calling out to you in haya that don't put me in that area. Right? But when we do that, then we lose the haya. And then, the next step, not just feeling, no longer feeling moral offense at that, but then actually committing that. It becomes much easier to do that sin. Or once you do a sin, then the second time, the third time, when you don't respond to the second half, which was the remorse. When you don't respond to the remorse, then it becomes easier to fall into that sin. You will, what does that mean? You will feel less remorseful the second time you do it. You feel less remorseful each successive time. Eventually, then you will feel no remorse. And... Actually, there comes a stage when your, your, your qalb is screaming to you to feel remorse, but you force yourself to feel no remorse because it's the only way you can cope now. Because you felt that, look, I've ignored this heart so long and I've fallen into this abyss. Now, I just can't handle I can't handle so literally. <clears throat> what a person does is they literally shut off their haya. They just turn it off. They, it's almost like they tell themselves, look, I just don't want to hear it anymore. 
I've made a decision to do this sin, and you keep giving me these guilt trips. I mean, these are all the English-American faces, right? I don't want the guilt trip anymore. I don't want the guilty feelings anymore. So a person just turns off their haya, right? Now imagine if you can turn off your haya, obviously it's equally possible to turn on your haya, right? And really that is where probably me and you lie. But how can we reactivate or increase our haya, right? That's what Imam Mamalud is talking about. Bring it back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The more and more we're forgetful about Allah, the more and more it's easier for us to lose our haya. The more and more we are mindful that Allah subhanahu is with us, Allah subhanahu is watching us, Allah subhanahu knows everything we're doing, or at least all seeing is all hearing is all knowing. Secondly, we perhaps think that Allah subhanahu is all giving. He's al-kareem, he's all generous. He's given us so many things. So it becomes even more shameful to disobey a being who has been so gracious towards you, who is so kind and generous towards you. So the more and more you think about Allah, the more and more your haya will come back. Because it's actually natural that when you think about Allah, you think about Him in a state of other. The second word was humility. It's Humility means to realize that Allah is the Malik and we are the Abd. So to realize our servanthood or slavehood in respect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the Prophet sent a very famous hadith, Man Allah, that that person who humbles themselves before Allah, Rafa'ahullah, Allah ta'ala raises them, right? It's an amazing thing. And, and, and you find a lot of this in the dunya. Uh, sorry, you find this a lot of this in the deen, that if you give something up for the sake of Allah, He grants you that very same thing, but in a purified form, right? So if you give up unlawful wealth, Allah will give you risk halal tayyib. Allah Ta'ala will give you risk that has barakah, that has kathrat, that has abundance and has blessings in it. Because you gave up the dunya for his sake, right? So here's the same notion that we give up, what is idzan? We give up our mastery. Because in reality, Allah Ta'ala has given us that free will, He's given us the ikhtiyar. You are, in a sense, master of your time. You are master of your day. You can do what you want. You can say what you want. You can sin if you like. You can obey if you want. You have mastery. And ids means, Ya Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you've given me control. I totally determine my 24 hours. But what I'm going to do is, I'm ajiz. I'm going to leave the determination to your raza, to your marzi. I'm going to do what you want me to do, rather do what I want to do. I'm going to be where you want me to be, rather be where I want to be. Right? That is ids. To sacrifice our desires for Allah's desires. And again, when you sacrifice your desires for Allah, Allah will give similar things back to you in a more purified form. For example, many, uh, you know, in, in Pakistan, and especially in this class, you have an rise of marital discord. And even you have, after you know, open full-fledged separation, and even now people open full-fledged divorce, right? Then you have this other group of people who come to me, but they're older than you, but you might have older brothers, the 30-something crowd in Pakistan. The 30-something crowd in Pakistan are people who are relatively newly married. They've been married for five years, seven years, maybe ten years, some of them, right? And it's amazing. They are remaining marriage in name, right? They remain married and they're not going through a divorce, right? Because there's a new type of social stigma in the young professionals, right? There was an old social stigma that, you know, if you give divorce, how you get remarried. That's not the issue, but there's this feeling, young professional, that you have to give this image of that happy married life. But when they come to you with their problems and their Allah Akbar Kabir, right? It's, uh, some of them are living in extremely difficult 
ways. And when you ask them, many of them will admit that they first met each other and interacted with one another prior to marriage in a way that was not permissible. If they had foregone that out of ids, if they were humble and said, Allah I want to, this is my desire, I want to do that. But it's my ids that I view you as my malak, that you are malak, you control me, you own me, you possess me, I've sold myself to you. And because you don't want me to do this, I will hold myself back. In exchange for that, Allah Ta'ala grants such a person, man or woman, barakah in their married life, marital happiness. So what happens is when we forego our ids and do things against the wishes of Allah, we're actually not just giving up our deen, we're actually spoiling our dunya. Right? Because we're going to lose the barakah in those areas of life. I give an example of marriage, you can use a similar example of wealth, you can use similar examples in almost anything. So Imam al said, that what is the highest and noblest of beginnings to have other with Allah, the high and the majestic, al-Ali al-Azim, by practicing modesty and humility, by practicing haya and its. Then he says that dejected out of shame and humility, so now he uses another word for that practice, right? What does that mean? That the haya and id, dejected here, what he's really saying, it's kind of, it means crippled. It means what I was telling you, it means that you're subdued now. Your, our own wishes, our own desires become subdued, tempered. Maybe that would be a better word. Tempered by this haya and its. Right? Uh, and that is the meaning of the ifat. Ifat means temperance. Right? If you have a friend who, or a sister or somebody named ifat, ifat means the ability to control, self-control, self-restraint. Right? Temperance. By giving up your designs for His. That I've already explained. Right? Giving up your plans for His. And the reality is, is that it's always His designs that are going to happen. Sayyidina Ali Radhanu said that, Ya Allah, I recognize you with yaqeen by seeing that when all my plans never come together. Some of them come together, but all of them don't come together. Then the next thing. Emptied of covetousness for what his servants have. Covetousness is what earlier you call lalach, right? Greed for what others have. That's also against adab. So the second thing is moving on to after the shame and humility is that you shouldn't have greed for others. How does this relate with adab? It relates with adab because Allah SWT is the bestower of ni'mats. He is al-razaq, he is al-raziq, he is al-mul'im. He is the one who bestows blessings and graces upon people. So when we are actively envious and we wish that X didn't have this, but I had it, what we're really doing is we're not just merely upset that X has something, we're actually criticizing Allah's taqseem. And that's khilaf adab. That's against our adab towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to think that somebody shouldn't have something. And instead of them, we should, that's, that's why I specifically use the word covetousness. To think that we're happy that somebody has it and I wish I could have that ni'mat also, that's perfectly fine. That's not against adab, right? But to have this type of hasad that I want that person to be deprived and I should have it instead. Or even the true hasad, I mean even more intense hasad is I want the person to be deprived. That person shouldn't have it. That's in the more intense type of hasad. And that's totally against other, right? Because it's kudiyakisne. Allah. Allah ka dene, wo dene wala hai. Uski dene jisko dene chahe, jaise dene chahe. That's the ikhtiyar, that's the sole domain or the purview of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the next thing was then giving up, emptied of covenants for the servants have. Next, by hastening to fulfill his commands. So the third thing is other, is to hasten. Not just to do his commands. Now you'll see that when you have other with a person. 
You don't have other people saying, bring me a glass of water, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll get it for you later. Right? Some of us don't have that other word, our parents, right? Your mother's calling you, Abdul Sib, Abdul Sib, Jima, I'm coming, later, right? But somebody of other, by teacher, Abdul Sib, and your parents get upset at that, right? They say, why do you have so much more respect, right? For the teacher than you have for me, or why do you have more respect for your brother, or the classic Sas Bahu, why do you have more respect for your wife? Right? Or similarly, the wife will tell her husband that when your friend calls you, you go in a minute. And when I need you to do something, you don't come and you forget and you come back the whole day and you're like, oh honey, I forgot. Right? So other means to hasten. That's the sign of other. He's moving to one of the signs of other. So, and he's also talking a bit, I mean obviously his audience was higher level. His audience were people who fulfilled the commands of Allah. Right? So for them, the adab is to hasten in that fulfillment. Right? To, and that haste, it's the, the purpose of haste is not speed. The purpose of haste is not speed. The purpose of hastening is that it shows that we're happy. We are radhi with Allah. We are happily being a servant. We don't view this as a burden. We don't view it as an obligation. We are happy to do it. You do, when you do something that you're happy to do, you happily do something, you do it quickly. You're waiting for it. You're yearning for it. You're in anticipation for to get the opportunity to do that. So that's what he's saying to have adab, even in those obligations that we're doing, that we should do them happily and we should do them quickly. Next, number four. <clears throat> By being wary of the subtle encroachment of bad manners. Being wary of the subtle encroachment. Very key words that he's using. Encroachment. Bad manners. Bad adab. Now what he's saying is that bad adab doesn't always come glaring at you in the face. And again, if the audience is a bit more high level, those would be people who obviously if they saw something evil coming in front of them, they would obviously reject it. But it can encroach upon a person, it creeps up on you. And even that, it does so subtly, surreptitiously. Right? So it means that part of being an other, right? and it's a general thing for many of the sifat of Islam, is to be on the outlook, to be wary of the opposite. So part of humility is to be wary to watch yourself against being arrogant. And part of adab then is going to be watchful of yourself lest we fall into, very suddenly fall into an act of bad adab, which is an act of disrespect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Many times what we do is we couch that disrespect in hope of Allah's mercy. So let's say you get up, you don't, you, sorry, you wake up in the morning for fajr, right? You woke up, but you don't, you choose not to get up, right? And you think that, yeah, I'm still tired and, you know, let me just roll around a bit more and Allah Ta'ala will forgive me, right? Now we couch that thinking that we're all, you know, Tawbatayb and we're, you know, seekers of the mercy of Allah, but actually this is Khalafi Adab. This is Khalafi Adab to change the nature of Allah at the moment when Allah Ta'ala is Al-Hakim, to change him at that moment and into a person who is waving his obligation, a being who is waving his obligation, by invoking his own sifat of rahmah, is an incredible act that is against other. Let me explain this again. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of his attributes is he is al-hakim, he is al-jalal, he commands us, he is al-malik. And then to somehow deny his mulukiyat, his rububiyat, his command over us, right? And rather than to just be honest, right? I mean, it wouldn't be a good thing to sleep through that fajr, but at least it wouldn't be khilaf adab if a person attributed to themselves. If a person felt that surely Allah wants me to now know that I've woken up to get up, but I'm just lazy, I'm going to sleep. But instead what a person does, right, is somehow they twist it and they say that to that, they don't say it with their words, but they're 
feeling is that that Malik is also Rahim and therefore I don't need to get up. So they negate his sifat of being a Malik by doing his sifat of Ar-Rahim. That's khilaf adab right? That's the subtle encroachment of doing something against the adab uh, that we should have towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you, the spiritual seeker, right? And this means the person who is seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Allah ta'ala is what we call the eternally besought. There is no being who has ever been as sought as him. No ideology, no being, no person who is just, you say, no, jitna, jitna, insaniyat ki tarikh mein, jitna Allah ta'ala ko pukara gaya hai, jitna Allah ta'ala ko chaha gaya There's nothing else like that. No other phenomenon, no being, no person, nothing that has been so sought after as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's the eternally besought, right? And he, and we have to make ourselves seekers. We have to make ourselves talib of Allah, murid of Allah, rahib illallah, right? <coughs> munib. Munib, to have inamat illallah, right? To have yearning uh, towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he says that if you, the seeker, realize your attributes of servitude, the word realize here means that your attributes, the sifat of ubudiyah, are as inherent to you, right, as the sifat of rububiyah are inherent to Allah. As much as Allah Ta'ala is intrinsically al-Rahman, al-Rahim, al-Malik, right, as intrinsically a human being is made, designed to be an abd, it's not a taqalluf, it's not something that we have to adopt through some external way. Allah Ta'ala designed human beings for ubudiyah. وَمَا خَلَقْتُمْ جِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لَيَعْبُدُونَ He says in the Quran that I do not create humanity or the jinn except for my ibadah. So human beings have been designed for this. So what we're actually are doing is we are realizing our inherent humanity. When you become the servant of Allah, you actually become a proper human being. So when you realize your attributes of servitude, then you will then be assisted with something of the attributes of the eternally besought. What does this mean? This refers to the... Because that could have been another topic, right? The 99 names. Asmal husna, the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the Prophet said an interesting hadith, تَخَلُّكُوا بِأَخْلَاقِ اللَّهِ That you should adorn yourself with the attributes of Allah. What does this mean? So for example, if Allah ta'ala is al-Rahim, He is merciful. We should also be people of mercy towards one another. Allah ta'ala is al-Kareem, He is generous. We should also be people of generosity and compassion to one another. Obviously the scale at which Allah ta'ala has it, that's infinite. We cannot even have a fraction of that, right? Neither in kind nor in degree. But it's still a reflection. And the, re- and the way you do that is you link it. So you make niyat in your heart that Allah I'm going to be merciful to someone because I want you to be merciful to me. Right? I'm going to be merciful to someone because if you are al-Rahim and I'm Abdul rahim then as Abdul rahim it befits me that I also should be merciful and kind to other people. Right? So in other words, to pluck the word abd and put it in front of all of the sifat of the asmal husna and to make that part of our identity. Right? So it might be a person's name. That's a separate thing. Right? But it's part of every mu'min's reality that all of us are Abdul Rahman and Abdul Rahim and Abdul Malik and Abdul Qayyum and Abdul Hayyan, etc., etc. Right? So we will then get noble attributes. This is in essence what he's saying is that if we subdue our lower attributes, we will be given such noble attributes that they're even the attributes or the names that Allah Ta'ala has chosen for Himself. Realize your abject character and impoverishment. What does this mean, abject character and impoverishment? What it means here is this Arabic word, which is fakr. That's why you'll find many times people refer to themselves as fakir. 
Because Allah SWT says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhannas, antumul fuqara'u ilallah. That, O oh, humanity, you are fuqara'a ilallah, towards Allah. You are needy, you are muhtaj, you are dependent, right? On Allah SWT. Now, if you realize that, if you realize your dependency, and that's something a lot of us don't do. A lot of us, we think we're independent of Allah. We're mustaghni an Allah. That we don't need Allah. Right? Now, we don't say that with our, again, we don't say that with our words. But anybody who says that, well, I don't need worship, or I don't need dua, or I don't need to know what is farz, or I don't need to stay away from that which is haram, is in essence saying that I don't need Allah. Right? I don't need that relationship. Because that relationship is based on all of those things. Without the love for Allah, you can't have that relationship. Now you look at any two relationships you have in the world, right? If there's no love, if there's no respect, if there's no fulfilling the terms of engagement, that relationship is finished. So the terms of engagement between us and the divine is the ab-the-rub relationship. That's the asl, the master-slave relationship. Ab-the-rub. If you don't have that ab-the-rub relationship, right? And if a person is content without that, right? There are many ways to count this contentment beautifully. One way is to say that I'm young, I'll do it later. But it means that, that what does that mean? That in my youth I'm perfectly content without it. That means that person doesn't view themselves as a fakir. They don't view themselves as muhtaj of Allah. They think that they can live a godless life. They can live an Allah-free life. So he's saying that, no, that's not possible. That's also khilafi adab. Right? You go to your dad and tell him, I don't need you. I don't need this father-daughter relationship. I don't need your fatherly attributes. I'm mean, not trying to do that. That's a more of a Christian tashbih. I'm just giving an example, right? Of another person or being that you have adab for. That would be khilafi adab, right? Part of the adab is to realize your role in that relationship, right? So to become a fakir. If you do that, if you realize your abject character and impoverishment, your need and dependence on Allah, then you will gain dignity and wealth from the all-powerful. Allah will give you izzat. And He said in the Quran, وَلِلَّهِ الْإِزَّتِ وَلِلْرَسُولِهِ وَلِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ That to Allah SWT belongs izzat, and to His Messenger, and to the believers. But the mu'mineen get izzat, whether it's as a collective ummah in this world, or as individuals. A mu'min gets izzat based on his or her ta'luk with Allah SWT. Based on to the extent that they are Abdullah. So if we realize our fakr, we will get izzat. There is no salvation like the heart salvation. It ends this first passage that there is no salvation like the heart salvation. There is no freedom like the heart's freedom. There is no purification like the heart's purification, given that all the limbs respond to its desires. So that's something I mentioned to you before, that the kalb is a control room. What does this mean? I'll give you an example. If in your heart you have the love for this world, right? I said the heart is the seat of your emotions. So if you have love for the dunya in your heart, that is going to determine your nafs and your akal. The nafs was about your desires, so you will have worldly desires. You will desire, I want a bigger car, I want a bigger house, I want a better career, I want a bigger promotion, I want a higher salary, I want more and more and more. Right? That is coming. That's not coming out of, out of the blue. That's coming because in our heart we have started to fall in love with the material world. Once those desires happen, then the akal will also be a tabe, the akal will also fall, so it will have this khala. You'll always be thinking about it. A person will be thinking, plotting, scheming, right? How they can get more, amass more and more to fulfill those desires. And then you get locked in this vicious circle, right? So the science of purification is what's going to enable us to break that vicious cycle, to sever, right, that bond, and to go right to the root, which is the kalp.
And to fix that, if you fix the qalb, if you bring salvation or purification or rectification, islah, to our qalb, then everything else will fall into place. All right. Then he says, moving to the next session, after firmly grasping this foundation, right? After firmly grasping this other. So there's a notion here, right? It's not necessary. It's not necessary, but he's suggesting, right, in this poem, that these things are going to happen sequentially. That there's going to be some tartib or some order and sequence. Not necessary again. There might be a person who, again, first of all, began in one of the other beginnings. There might be a person who begins and tries to increase their other with Allah in the many ways that we've discussed, but simultaneously may embark on the next thing that he's mentioning, right? And in this day and age, really, when a person is totally, right, at loss, you just grab onto anything, right? Like, just imagine that a person who's got a store, and he says business is bad. When business is bad, he's willing to sell anything, even if somebody comes in and buys a piece of chalk or chewing gum for five rupees, he gets happy. He makes a sale, right? Even if it's just a five rupees. So that's our state. We should really try to grab to anything, right? So you know, there's no ihtimam or there's no luzum. There's no, it's not necessary to stick to this tertib. However, he suggested after firmly grasping this foundation, which is that of adab, then mastering the heart's infirmities is the second stage. Mastering the ailments of the heart is the second step, right? Obviously, perhaps one way he's doing that is because if you have other with Allah, then that's going to empower you, right? So maybe if we try to tackle the illnesses of the heart directly without restoring that relationship with Allah, it's difficult for us because we're weak people. So the notion of doing the other part first is actually to strengthen us, to empower us to be successful on the second thing, to master the heart's infirmities. And these were the things I discussed with you that I mentioned the anger, the greed, the envy, etc. Knowledge of the heart's ailments, knowledge of what they are, what exactly are the diseases of the heart. Number two, what causes each of them? What are the sabab? What will bring this ailment in my heart? And number three, what removes them? So what they are, what causes them, and what can remove them is an obligation on everyone. That's what I've mentioned to me. This is wajib. It's farad. It's farad because we have to purify ourselves of these inner ailments. For example, a very famous hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, he said that Allah has revealed to him that no believer will enter heart, uh, enter Jannah if they have an atom's weight, they have a dharra, an atom's weight, or a drop, or a morsel of the cover in their heart. So obviously then that means it's incumbent upon us to remove ourselves of this takabr. Then he continues that this is the ruling of Al-Ghazali. Imam Al-Ghazali was of the position that this is wajib. However, Imam Mawlud says that this does not apply to the one who was already granted a sound heart. In other words, it's not wajib to learn the science or method of purification. If you're already pure, right? If somehow, but I mean, I don't think there's anybody right now who's going to be at that level. But if there was somebody who already had a purified heart, then it's not necessary for them to sit down and start reading all these books. And if you don't feel arrogance, if it's correct and, and somebody else maybe diagnoses you and says you don't have any takabur, then there's no need to go into a very long discussion of what takabur is and read all about it and read how to cure it when you don't have that illness, right? But if you have that illness or if you're at the danger of having that illness or if you're exposed to that illness, then it is wajib to study that illness. And that's the state that me and you are in, 
right? For Al-Ghazali reckoned the heart's illnesses as inherent to humanity. Others deemed them predominant in man, not qualities necessarily inherent to his nature. This was basically a divergence of opinion that emerged from the Qur'an al-Kareem. And that is on the one hand this notion that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created humanity in a state of original purity. And on the other hand this verse where he says, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given a human being the ability to do fujur. Fujur means disobedience. Fujur means sin. Right? Fujur means, can include these inner ailments. So the question is, is a human being inherently pure? Or is a human being inherently a mixture of good and evil? If you take the second position, that a human being inherently has the ability, let's give, take a particular example. One is to say, is a human being is inherently humble. That humility is his asal, ijz is his asal. And the second is to say, a human being has the potential to be ajz or be mutakabr. That was the position Imam Ghazali took. Therefore he said that even if you don't have takabr, because it's inside of you, it's part of your essential being that you have the potential to have the cover. You have to know this. It's still wajib on you. And the other group of scholars who said, no, that a person's asal is that they're ajas. So if they have not fallen into the cover yet, then it's not wajib. It's still recommended. But it's not obligatory for them to study this. Right? So here, either way, given that me and you, right, <laughs> it doesn't really matter for us. Right? These are debates for very noble and virtuous people, both Ghazali and Imam Mawmulu, then everyone would have the same view about us, that we definitely are mixtures of good and evil, and none of us are on the state of being 100% on our asal. Right? Okay, so he ends it, but know that obliteration of the diseases until no trace remains is beyond the capacity of human beings. So what he's doing, is doing an ishara here, a signal that he agrees with Imam Ghazali. That to completely obliterate yourself, right? So there's no trace of this. So one is okay, can say, at this moment, I don't feel unlawful desire. To make myself such that I could never ever even have the potential or possibility of ever feeling that, that's not possible. Therefore, I have to be on guard. Therefore, I have to study what this is. I have to see what are the things that brings this unlawful feeling in my heart. I have to set up barriers so it doesn't come. If somehow something manages to seep through, I have to learn how to take it out, right? So that, that way I'm prepared, right? It's like fire drill, right? It's like fire safety training. That how to prevent a fire? What should you do if a fire happens? Right? What is the exit strategy? That's the same thing. Why am I calling it a fire? Because these things burn your heart. They burn the purity of our heart. They burn, they incinerate our ability to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So inner sins incinerate our inner self. And when your inner self becomes burned and your inner self becomes dead, right? Then Allah subhanahu wa and deen and all of these things are just nice philosophical concepts. They're no longer part of our life, right? And then our life becomes empty of barakah, our life becomes empty of itminan, our life becomes empty of sukoon, right? And then you feel that vacuum in your heart that I was mentioning to some of you the other night, right? And that vacuum in our heart is actually this, right? That we've allowed our heart to become sick. It's like somebody who all of a sudden gets diagnosed with cancer. And they're amazed and say, I, don't, no, I can't believe I was carrying this cancerous mass with me for so long. And thank God I was lucky to get an early diagnosis. Because if I didn't get an early diagnosis and begin early treatment, this cancer would have spread or would become so firm, it would be beyond the reach of any type of treatment. Well, the same thing is true of spiritual cancer. That's why it's critical for a young man or woman to go for the early diagnosis. 
not to think that I can live with this greed or with this lust or with this envy or with any of these spiritual diseases or with this lack of other towards Allah or with being distant from Allah that this is in any way a sustainable state it's not sustainable I might be sustaining it but it's doing it's corroding my inner self it's damaging my ruh and if I don't look into it if I don't examine it if I don't try to fix it then I am on as sure a path to destruction as that person who has physical cancer that goes undiagnosed and that goes untreated. So we'll stop over here, right? It's the first day of Ramadan. You're on your first fast, right? The drowsiness and the difficulty, as always for our front rowers, is always there, right? (laughs) So we'll stop here. If anybody has any questions on what was discussed today, you can ask them. Uh, At the same time, anybody, feel free to leave whenever you want, right? The only thing I ask is that if you stay for the beginning of answer, you have to stay till the answer is completed because sometimes half an answer is worse than no answer. So every pause is a chance to leave. This is the first chance to leave. After the first question, that will be a chance to leave. right? But don't leave in the middle. You can leave in the middle of a question also. That's no problem. But don't leave in the middle of an answer. right?